cash. The title again is In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. Now, the specific story that uh, I've been requested to, to read by a lot of people is one that has to do with not only Thanksgiving, but it has to do with a specific part of Thanksgiving. You know, when we talk about Thanksgiving generally, or any one of the major holidays, we generally talk about the more obvious symbols of them. So if we talk about uh, Christmas, generally people do uh, a you know, thing on Santa Claus or gift-giving, and yet there's a lot more to it than that. Thanksgiving, for example, uh, is more than just a, a big dinner, a turkey, and it's also more than history. That uh, throughout most of the country, Thanksgiving, and particularly the Thanksgiving weekend, is related to things like football. It's related to things like marching bands, and that's a specific time of the year. It's usually at the end of the, uh, very much, just the beginning of winter, really. And uh, as uh, Thanksgiving varies from time to time, the, the week that it's actually celebrated, it's colder in some parts of the country and, and uh, not quite as cold in others. But uh, when I was a kid, and, uh, and I grew up in Indiana, and uh, in Indiana, uh, Thanksgiving was usually a very cold time of the year, really. Uh, that, that, they, that, the, that the temperature drops. Uh, they have a long, very indolent and beautiful fall out in that part of the country. Uh, I suspect that fall throughout the Midwest is quite possibly the prettiest time of the year out there. And fall is... Uh, there have been some great paintings and cartoons and so forth done on the whole idea of fall. Uh, Indian summer, you know, is a Midwestern term that, uh, that uh, it comes out of the, of course, Indiana, which is where I grew up, used to be Indian country, and that's why it's called Indiana. And it was great Indian country, you know, with tremendous forests at the time when they lived there. And so at the time of fall, when the cold weather hit, there would be a dramatic change that would happen. Uh, the, uh, with, the, with the foliage and so forth out there, and it's really dramatic. Here in the east, because of the ocean, it's more muted. Uh, the ocean tends to mute various seasons. In other words, the summer is kept uh, warmer, or rather it's kept cooler and moister than it would get ordinarily because of this big body of water here. And the winters are muted, too, here. Whereas out in the Great Plains states, the dramatic changes of season are just fantastic. I've seen it. I've seen it sometimes where one day it would be like summer. I mean, really summer. The temperature would be 65 and 70 degrees, and suddenly, without any warning, it's not subtle at all. Without any warning, one morning you wake up and the temperature is 15. Just zap. I've seen the temperature drop in in the Midwest uh, 50 degrees in 12 hours. And stay there. I mean, it isn't just a momentary cold front moving through. It just stays there. So uh, Thanksgiving is always associated in large numbers of people's minds with changes of the season because it comes right at that time. And uh, many Thanksgivings, I remember, were really cold Thanksgivings. And this uh, nothing to do with the old days. <laughs> a lot of people have a tendency to think that climate was something that happened in the old days. I don't know why this is. It's curious that people have a tendency to believe that, that weather is something. <laughs> and whenever you talk about weather, they say, oh, now, there's an old-timer talking about the old days. 
which is kind of ridiculous. Uh, but nevertheless, there is that mythology. Maybe it's because uh, in, in the East, largely, the people do not run into the weather much. They, they don't encounter it. We live indoor lives in the East. And in general, our lives are controlled by air conditioning and cabs. And uh, also the, the fact that our climate is not as severe. It's not as uh, intrusive. It doesn't come right in and take a hold of you, air conditioning or not. It doesn't make any difference whether you got the oil to, uh, to heat you. If the temperature is 15 degrees below zero outside, you know it. The windows are frozen stiff. And it may be warm in the house, but you're very aware of how cold it is outside. Even if you have a, a car to drive around, and everybody has a car. But getting from the house to the car, you're reminded very strongly of what kind of climate you're living in. And then you get in the car, and of course, cars react very differently in really severe climates than they do out here. And so I remember when... Uh, when I lived out in Indiana, they're doing it now. So don't think this is the old days. It's now. Because uh, climate has not changed abruptly in five years or ten. It's just that way. Uh, out in, in, in Indiana, for example, everybody gets his car ready for winter. When you put antifreeze in your car, the antifreeze is, uh, is usually down to about 25 below zero. Because if you don't have your car protected to 25 below zero, Sure as, uh, you know, sure as shooting, you're going to get a, a crack block because uh, there's no, uh, it's not unusual to have the temperature fall to 30 below. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not usual either. In other words, it isn't a thing that happens all the time, but all of a sudden, bang, it's 30 below zero, and it'll go down maybe eight hours to that temperature. But uh, it's, it's quite common, on the other hand, to have it 12 and 15 below which is very unusual here in New York City, extremely unusual. And, of course, it's, a, it's accompanied with a very fierce wind. And so uh, this story is the story that a lot of people have requested, and in particular, uh, kids in colleges request this story. This happens to be one of the very favorite stories that I've ever published in Playboy that the college kids dig. It's about a very special, uh, a very special world. I think we, we need a little, a little mood music to set the scene. Just a little mood music. The name of the story is Wilbur Duckworth and his magic baton. When the bitter winds of dead winter howl out of the frozen north, making the ice-coated telephone wires creak and sigh like suffering live things, many an ex-B-flat sousaphone player feels an old, familiar dull ache in his muscle-bound left shoulder, a pain never quite lost as the years spin on, old aching numbnesses of the lips permanently implanted by frozen German silver mouthpieces of the past an instinctive hunching forward into the wind, tacking obliquely the better to keep that giant burnished con bell heading always into the waves. A lonely man, carrying unshareable wounds and memories to the grave, the butt of low, ribald humor, gaucheries beyond description, unapplauded by music lovers. The sousaphone player is among the loneliest of men. His dedication 
is almost monk-like in its fanaticism and solitude. He is never, I repeat, never asked to perform at parties. His fame is minute, even among fellow band members, being limited almost exclusively to fellow carriers of the great horn. Hence, his devotion is pure. When pressed for an explanation as to why he took up the difficult study and discipline of sousaphone playing, few can give a rational answer, usually mumbling something very much like the famed retort of the climbers of Mount Everest. There is no sousaphone category in the renowned jazz polls. It would be inconceivable to imagine an LP entitled Harry Schwartz and his golden sousaphone blow Cole Porter in stereo. And yet, <laughs> every sousaphone player in his heart knows that no instrument is more suited to Cole Porter than his beloved four-valver. Its rich, verdant mellowness, its loving, somber blues and grays and tonality are among the most sensual and thrilling of sounds to be heard in a man's time. But it will never be. Forever, and by definition, those brave marchers under the flashing bells are irrevocably assigned to the rear rank. Few men know the facts of life more truly than a player of this noble instrument. Twenty minutes in a good marching band teaches a kid more about how things really are than five years at mother's granite knee. There are many misconceptions, which at the outset must be cleared up before we proceed much further. Great confusion exists among the unwashed as to just what a sousaphone is. Few things are more continually irritating to a genuine sousaphone man than to have his instrument constantly called a tuba. A tuba is a weak, puny thing set only for muling, middle-aged dancers, puking babes, and Guy Lombardo. The better to harass balding dancers. That is a tuba, an upright instrument of startling ugliness and mooing, flatulent tone. The tuba has none of the grandeur, the, the scope of sweep of its massive, gentle, distant relation. The sousaphone. The sousaphone is worn proudly, curled above the body, about the body, over the left shoulder, and mounting above the head is that brilliant, golden, gleaming disc rivaling the sun in its glory. Its graceful curves clasp the body in a warm and crushing embrace. The right hand in position over its four massive mother-of-pearl cap valves. It is an instrument a man can literally get his teeth into, and often does. A sudden collision with another bell has in many instances produced interesting dental malformations which have provided oral surgeons with some of their happier moments. A sousaphone is a worthy adversary which must be watched like a hawk and truly mastered ere it master you. Dangerous, unpredictable, difficult to play. It offers rich rewards. Each sousaphone individually, since it is such a massive creation, assumes a character of its own. Each individual sousaphone. There are bad-tempered instruments. And there are friendly instruments. Sousaphones that literally lead their players back and forth through beautiful countermarches on countless football fields. Then there are the treacherous, which buck and fight and must be held in tight rein. They're a disaster strike. Like horses or women, no two sousaphones are alike. Nor, like horses or women, will man ever fully understand them. Among the other imponderables, a player must have as profound a knowledge of winds and weather 
as the skipper of a racing yawl. A cleanly aligned sousaphone section, marching into the teeth of a spanking crosswind with mounting gusts booming out the second course of Semper Fidelis, is a study of courage and control under difficult conditions. I myself, once in my rookie days, got caught in a counterclockwise wind with a clockwise instrument and spun violently for five minutes before I regained control, all the while playing one of the finest obligados that I ever blew on the National Emblem March. Sometimes in a high wind, the sousaphone will start playing you. It literally blows back, developing enough back pressure to produce a thin chorus of Dixie out of both ears of the unwary sousaphonist. It is a tough instrument. Yes, the high school marching band that I performed in was led by a maniacal zealot who had whipped us into a fine state of tune rivaling a crack unit of the Prussian guards. We won prizes, cups, ribbons, and huzzas wherever we performed. Wheeling, counter-marching, spinning, knees high. All the while, we played on the mall, the Double Eagle, El Capitan, the NC4 March, Semper Fidelis, Washington Post. We had marched and mastered every one of the classics. Our fanatical 180 beat to the minute cadence snapped and cracked and rolled on like the steady beating of an incessant surf. Sharp in itchy uniforms and high peak caps, we learned the bitter facts of life while working our spit valves and bringing pageantry and pomp into the world of the blast furnace and the open heart under the leaden, wintry skies of the Indiana prairie land. The central figure of the scene was our drum major. Ours was a Spartan organization. We had no majorettes, pom-pom girls, or other such decadent signposts on the roadway of a declining civilization. In fact, it was an all-male band that had no room for such grotesqueries as thin, flat-chested, broad-bottomed female trombone players and billowy-bosomed clarinetists. A compact 66-man company of flat-stomached, hard-jawed, knee-high drinkers led by a solitary, heroic, high-kneed, arrogant baton twirler. Drum majors are a peculiarly American institution. And Wilbur Duckworth was cast in the classic mold. Imperious, egotistical beyond belief, he was hated and feared by all of us down to the last lowly cymbal banger. Most drum majors of my acquaintance are not all-American boys in the Jack Armstrong tradition. In fact, they lean more in the general direction of Captain Quig, somehow tainted by the vanity of a Broadway musical dancer, plus the additional factor of high school hero. In spite of legend, many drum majors are notably unsuccessful with women. Wilbur was no exception, and his lonely frustration in this most essential of human pursuits had led him to incredible heights of baton twirling. He concentrated and practiced hour upon hour until he became a Ted Williams among the wearers of the shako. His arched back, swinging shoulders, lightning like chrome wands, the sharp, imperious bite of his whistled commands were legendary. Wherever bandsmen rested the swap tail. At a full, rolling 180 beat per minute tempo, Duckworth's knees snapped as high as most men's shoulders. He would spin. Marching backward, baton held ready at port, 
Eyes gleaming steadily straight ahead in our direction. This one over here. Give me the music of the band. Right. Okay. <laughs> Two sharp blasts of a silver whistle. And then a longer one. A quick snap up and down movement of the wand. And we would crash out into a rolling march. The Thunderer, which opened with a spectacular trombone trumpet and sousaphone flourish of vast medieval grandeur. Precisely as the last notes of the flourish ended and the Thunderer boomed out, Wilbur spun like a machine and went into his act. Over the shoulder like a stiffened silver snake with a life of its own. Under both legs, that live metal whip never lost a beat or faltered ever so slightly. Catching the sun, it spun a blur high into the Indiana skies and down again. Wilbur never deigning so much as even watch its flight. He knew where it was. It knew where he was. They were one, a spinning silver bird. Even as we roared into the coda of the thunderer, attacking the 16th note crisply, yes, with bite, we were always conscious of the steady swish of that mechanical hissing baton cutting the air like a blade, a hissing obligato to John Philip Sousa. Like all champion drum majors, and Wilbur had more medals at 17 than General Patton garnered over a lifetime of combat, this is W.O.R. New York. Poverty, ignorance, pain, hunger, sadness, loss of self-respect, disease, false idols, hate. These are the reasons why people fight. These are also the reasons why the Peace Corps is in Ghana and India and Colombia and 49 other countries. The job of a Peace Corps volunteer is to give people a chance to develop dignity. To give people a chance to know they can do a job well. To give people a chance to be proud. To give people a chance at a better life. In short, to give people a chance. This is how the Peace Corps works for peace. Would you like to work for peace? You may be qualified. Write the Peace Corps in Washington for an application. Wilbur's act was carefully programmed, almost in the same way that an Olympic skater performs the classical school figures. Wilbur had mastered, years before, the basic baton maneuvers, the classical flips and spins, and performed them with razor-sharp glittering precision. He would begin with a quick, over-the-back roll, a comparatively simple basic move, and then, moment by moment, his work would grow increasingly complex, as variation upon variation of spinning steel wove itself through the winter air. And then finally, just as his audience, nervously awaiting disaster, to a man believed there was nothing more that could be done with a baton, Wilbur, pausing slightly to fake them out, making them believe his repertoire was over, would give them the capper. Every great baton twirler has one thing that he alone can perform since he alone has created and honed and shaped his final statement. Midway in his repertoire, Wilbur would whip a second baton from a sheath held by a great brass clip to his wide white uniform belt. Using the dual batons, he worked upward and upward until the final eerie moment. At the last notes of the Thunderer, a drummer on cue beat out the rhythm of our march using a single stick on the rim of his snare. <laughs> 
we marched silently forward, Wilbur, then, with great deliberation, holding both batons out before him, began to spin them in opposite directions, synchronized, like the blades of a twin-engine plane. Twin propellers interleaved before him, gaining speed faster and faster and faster until the batons had all but disappeared into a faint silver film. The only sound, the tick, 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 tick of Ray Janowski's snare and the steady in-step beat of feet hitting the pavement. His back arched, taut as a bow, knees snapping waist-high at the agonizingly right instant with two imperceptible flips of the wrist, Wilbur would launch his twin rapiers straight up into the icy air, still spinning in synchronization. Like some strange science fiction bat, some glittering metal bird, the batons, gaining momentum as they rose, would soar 30 or 40 feet above the band, and then gracefully, at the apex of the arc, spinning slower and slower, they would come floating down. Wilbur, never even for an instant, glassing upward, his eyes, the band's eyes front, down would come the batons, dropping faster and faster, and still Wilbur marched on, his eyes forward, and then incredibly, at the very last instant, just as they were about to crash into the street, in perfect rhythm, both hands dart out, and the batons, together, leap into life, and again become silver blurs. It was the Duckworth Capper. The instant his batons picked up momentum and spun back to life, Janoski ticked twice, and the drum section rolled out our basic cadence as the crowd roared. Unconcerned, unseeing, we marched on. Wilbur rarely used the capper more than once or twice in any given parade or performance. Like all great artists, Wilbur gave of his best sparingly. None of us realized at the time that Duckworth had not yet shown us his greatest capper. The high point of our marching year traditionally came in the Thanksgiving Day Parade, and that fateful Thursday dawned dark and gloomy, full of evil portent. The last bleak week in November had been literally polar in its savagery. For weeks, a bitter Canadian wind had drawn steadily off Lake Michigan, blowing the blast furnace dust into long rivers and eddies of red grime on the gray ice that bordered the curbs and coated the bus stops and rutted the streets. These are days that try a sousaphonous soul to the utmost. That giant chunk of inert brass gathers cold into it like a thermic vacuum cleaner. Valves freeze at half-mast. Mouthpieces stick to the tongue and lips in the way that iron railings trap children, and the blown note itself seems thin and weak and lost in the knife-like air. The assembly point for the parade was well out of the main section of town, back of Harrison Park. Any veteran parade marcher knows the scene, a sort of shambling, weaving confusion, the Croatian-American float, the friends of Italy, the moose, the ladies of the moose, the children of the moose, the Queen of the Moose, the Odd Fellows Whistling Brigade, the Red Men of America in full headdress and buckskin, the Owls, the Eagles, the Wolves, the Imperial Catfish Clan, the Shriners, complete with Pasha and Red Fezzes, the AFL, the CIO Steelworkers Local 1010, 
all gathered to snake their way through the ambient Indiana Sinclair refinery air for glory and to thank God that there is an America or maybe just a parade which seems to be a basic human urge. This gathering point is always known as a rendezvous in parade ease. On the bulletin board the week before, the usual notice was posted, quote, the band will rendezvous at 0800 on Holman Avenue opposite Harrison Park. Each unit will be numbered. Look for the number painted on the curb, 12. We will step off promptly and smartly at 0915. Of course, by 12.30, we were still milling around, noses running, and way off in the distance, always the sound of some band or other playing something, and still we stood. The thin trickle of glockenspiel music came back to us through the frozen trees and bushes as the musicians' local marching band tuned up. Megaphones bellowing cars raised back and forth over the disorganized line of march until finally, slowly and painfully, we moved off. Wilbur Duckworth shot us aggressively into our assigned march positions, and we were underway. Rumors had gone from band to band, from drummer to drummer, that the mayor up ahead on the reviewing stand was drunk, and that we were delayed while they sobered him up, that he had chased a lady high school principal around the lectern. But, of course, these are just parade rumors. The Thanksgiving Day Parade is really a Christmas rite. Behind us on a huge white float rode Santa Claus, throwing confetti at the crowd as we moved through town. It's hard to tell from a marcher's standpoint just what parade watchers think, if anything. As we got closer to the center of town, the crowd grew thicker, muffled, hooded, mittened, earmuffed, gray staring faces of sheet metal workers, iron puddlers, just standing in the dead zero air. This is where you begin to learn about humanity. Their eyes look like old oysters. They just look. Once in a while, you see a guy smoking a cigar. He spits. And from time to time, a kid throws a penny or a Mary Jane or a cherry bomb into the bell of your sousaphone. All the bands, of course, are marching to their own cadence. Up ahead, the ladies' auxiliary of the whales shuffles on. In the cold winter of the Midwest, you can hear a girdle squeak for three blocks. We march past the assembled multitude, Duckworth never glancing to right or left, straight ahead, brow-high, paper-thin black kid gloves worn on his baton hands. Up ahead, the flags and banners of all kinds are fluttering in the icy cold breeze. Lithuanian American Club, hooray for America, God bless all of us. The steel workers just stand there, silently, looking. From somewhere behind, a glockenspiel in the German-American band tinkles softly and stops, and all around the steady drum beats roll. We are on the march. Strung overhead, from lamppost to lamppost across the main street, were strings of green and red Christmas lights, green plastic holly wreaths with imitation red berries hung from every other lamppost. We are now right in the middle of town. This is the big moment. It is like Times Square in Holman, Indiana, the crossroads. A streetcar line ran right down the middle of the main street, and I am straddling a track, trying to keep up the 180-beat-per-minute cadence, blow our special version of jingle bells on my frozen sousaphone. Bitter, frozen, sliding along the tracks with the ice packed in hard, I've lost all feeling, completely. My ears, my nose, my horn are frozen. My hands are frozen. 
We moved haltingly ahead, slowly, slowly. We'd bump into the Italian ladies ahead, and the German plumbers behind would bump into us. Somewhere, the moose would swear. The eagles would yell. And then we were right at ground zero. The reviewing stand to our right, the assembled multitude cheering, the national champions on to greater heights. We were the national champions, the top marching band in the country. And we were right at ground zero. Wilbur spun and faced us with his old, familiar, icy stare. And suddenly, the cold was forgotten. We were on. Two sharp rips of the whistle, a sustained, long, rising note, baton at port, two quick flips of the wrist, and our great fanfare boomed out. The parade had come alive. The champs were on the scene. The American Legion Junior Fife and Drum Corps faded into oblivion where they deserved to be. The Fireman's Scottish Bad Pipe Company disappeared into total limbo. Wilbur Duckworth was in command, and we were playing big. Ray Janowski's beat was never sharper, leading his drum section to heights that rivaled our best performances. Duckworth about faced and went into action, his great shako reaching up like a giant shaving brush with plume into the sullen gray sky. A magnificent figure, his gold epaulets glinting as we wove at half-tempo over the hard-caked ice, little realizing that we were about to participate in an historic moment that has since become part of the folk songs and fireside legends of northern Indiana. The Washington Post march echoed in that narrow street like a cannon volley being fired in a cave. Blowing a sousaphone at such a moment gives one a sense of power, friends, that is only rivaled perhaps by the feel of a Ferrari cockpit at Le Mans in the Green Prix. Ernie Spitzer, our bass drummer, six feet nine inches tall, caught fire that afternoon. His ivory stick spinning in the air, his drum quivering, the worn gold and purple lettering on its head read, National Precision Marching Champions, Class A. The crowd had subdued into a kind of tense silence. They were viewing greatness, the panoply of tradition and pomp, and they knew it. The 14-inch merchant mill and the coal strip pickling department of the steel mill rarely see such glory. Children stopped crying. Noses ceased to run. Eyes sparkled. And blue plumes of exhaled breath hung like smoke wreaths into the air as we slammed into the final chorus. I was beginning to wonder whether Duckworth would dare to try his capper on such a dangerously cold day as this, with those sneaky November cross winds and numbed fingers. His ramrod back, way up ahead of me, gave absolutely no hint. One thing was sure, and everybody in the band knew it, Wilbur had never been sharper, cleaner, more dynamic. <laughs> 
By now, he was three-quarters through his act. His figure-eight and double eagle had been spectacular. The trombones just ahead of me, usually a lethargic section, were blowing clean and hard. Wilbur's twin batons were alive. His timing was spectacular. We arrived at dead center of the intersection, precisely as the last note of the Washington Post march echoed from the plate glass windows of the big department store and died out against the gray, dirty facade of the drugstore on the opposite corner. For just a moment, the air rang with the kind of explosive silence that follows a train wreck or the last note of the Washington Post played by a band with blood in its veins and juice in its glands. And then it began. Ray Janowski ticked his solitary beat. Tick, 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 tick. We marched forward, almost marking time and place. Tick, 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 tick. The crowd sensed something was about to begin. Something was going to happen. Duckworth towered ahead of us, weaving slightly. Left, right, left, right. As his twin batons in uncanny synchronization began to spin faster and faster. Sound carries in cuttingly cold air. And even the mayor, up on the reviewing stand, could hear the sound of those spinning chromium slivers. Spinning. Wilbur held it longer than any of us had ever seen him do before, stretching the dramatic tension to the breaking point and beyond. Beside me, Dunker, another bass player, muttered, What the hell's he doing? Wilbur spun on. Janowski ticked off the rhythm. Tick, tick, tick. We marched imperceptibly like some giant glacier across the intersection. And then the two interlocked birds of prey, duckworth batons, rose majestically in the hard November gloom. Higher and higher they spun, faster than even the day that Wilbur had won the national championship. It was unquestionably a supreme effort. He was a senior. He knew that this was his last full-scale public appearance before the hometown rabble. His last majestic capper. Every eye in the band stared straight ahead, following the climbing arc of those two beautifully interleaved discs as they climbed smartly, higher and higher above the street. Wilbur, true to his style, stared coldly ahead, eyes, uh, eyes ahead like ice, knees snapping upward like pistons. He knew his trade, and he was at the peak of his powers. And then it happened. Instinctively, every member of the base section crunched lower in his sousaphone at the awesome sight. Running parallel with our path and directly above Wilbur Shaco, high above the street, hung a thin, curving copper band of wire. The streetcar high-tension line. Slightly below it and to the left was another thin wire of some nondescript origin. The two discs magically, in a single synchronous action, seemed to cut the high-tension wire in half as they rose above it without so much as touching a single bit of copper. And then, 10 or 12 feet above the high-tension wire, they reached their apex, and in a style cleaner and more spectacular than any of us ever had suspected was in Duckworth, they slowed and began their downward swoop. We watched. The crowd watched. And Wilbur marched on, eyes straight ahead. My God, what a moment. The mayor leaned forward slightly on the reviewing stand, and even the children sensed that history was about to be made. For just a fleeting instant, it appeared as though the two batons would repeat their remarkable, interleaving, dodging, weaving avoidance of that lethal wire on their way down. In fact, the one on the right did. 
but the left baton hovered for just an instant, spinning slower and slower above the copper band, and then, with a metallic ting, it just ticked, barely kissed, just barely kissed the current carrier with its chrome silver ball. The other end fell across the other nondescript wire gently, and for a split second, nothing happened. Janoski tick, 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 bravely on. Our cadence never varied as our feet sounded as one on that spiteful, filthy ice. Then, an eerie, transparent, cerulean blue nimbus, a kind of expanding halo, rippled outward from the suspended baton, and from some far-off distant place beyond the freight yards, past the Griselli chemical plant, an inhuman, painful, quickening shudder grew closer and closer, as though a wave were about to break over all of us, and then... intersection was a gigantic, unimaginably immense Fourth of July sparkler that threw a Vesuvius, a screaming shower of flame in a giant pinwheel down to the street and into the sky, over the crowd and out of the band. The air was alive with hissing, sizzling ozone. It seemed to flash with great thunderbolts. On and on and on. Time stood still. It could have been ten seconds or an eternity. It just hung there, that baton, and burned and burned, ionizing before our eyes. Janowski, Janowski bravely ticked on. A few muffled screams came from the crowd. Fuses were blowing out over the entire county, as far away as Gary. High-tension poles were toppling somewheres miles away. Steel mills stopped. Boats sank on the river. It was as though some giant thunderbolt-hurling god had laid one down right in the middle of Holman on Thanksgiving Day. The ground shuddered. Huge generators as far south as Indianapolis were screaming. Duckworth had hit the main fuse. It was the greatest capper of all time. By now, the second baton had descended without so much as an upward glance. Duckworth caught it neatly and spun on. The drum section picked up the cadence, and we marched smartly through the intersection leaving behind a scene that forms now, to this day, the core of several epic poems relating the incident. Duckworth immediately signaled, already, are you set in there? Duckworth immediately signaled for El Capitan. Wow! And as we attacked the intro, the crowd burst into a fantastic roar of applause and surging emotion. The aroma of burnt rubber, scorched copper, ionized chrome, and frozen ozone trailed us up the street. Santa Claus, in a window, sat mouth agape, 
Grumpy's hammer was held stiffly at half-mast. The Christmas trees had flickered out, and Merry Christmas neon signs were dark. All of us in the band knew that, that the baton that had gone up in smoke had been one of Wilbur's top awards. His presentation set of matched wands won at the state championship. The other, the surviving baton, he held lightly in his gloved right hand, his arm shooting high over his head and down diagonally across his body. Up and down, up and down, he spun as we roared into El Capitan. sharp blasts of the whistle. His signal for under the double eagle. His eyes steely as ever. His grim jaw shut and square. From all sides we could hear the sound of sirens approaching the scene that we were leaving behind us. We roared into another march. And with its massive crescendos, it... There you go. <laughs> it's unmatched, massive crescendos. It's unmatched sousaphone obligato as we played this great, not turkey in the straw. That ain't a march. <laughs> as we played this great classic and Duckworth led us on into the gloom, every sousaphone player, every baritone man, the trumpets, the trombones, the clarinets, the piccolos, the flutes, the snare drummers, and Janowski and all of us thought just one thing. As we roared on, did he plan it? You can never tell about drum majors. This was not the sort of mistake Wilbur Duckworth would have made. Had he calculated this? Practiced? Worked for this moment for four long years? Was this gigantic capper, this unparalleled capper, his final statement to home in Indiana? The miserable steel mills, the refinery, the sheet and tube works, those gray oyster eyes, and the Croatian Ladies' Aid Society. Up ahead, Duckworth, arched back as taut as spring steel, told us nothing. We just played on. On and on. We roared again into the Washington Post march, and then the stars and stripes forever. His shako reached for the sky. His great plume waved on. He blew a long, single, hanging blast, holding his remaining baton at a high, oblique angle over his head. Two short blasts followed, and he smartly commanded a column right. The drums thundered as we moved into a side street. The band blew like a machine, hard, high, and cool, in the frozen air. The drums thundered as we moved on into a side street and headed back towards school. Still we played. The parade was over. The wind was rising. And it seemed to be getting colder. A touch of snow was in the air. Christmas was on the way.
Okay, that was uh, Wilbur Duckworth and his magic baton. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll tell you this. Uh, of all the stories that I've ever written, and I've written, let's see now, as of this date, something like 23 uh, short stories that were published in Playboy and dozens that were published in other magazines, I think that uh, Wilbur Duckworth was one of the most uh, interesting stories to write. I really got wrapped up in that thing, uh, writing it. It's a curious kind of uh, <laughs> allegorical story. And uh, and over the years, there's been uh, more and more requests for me to read that one and to put it on one of the shows, particularly a Thanksgiving or Christmas show. So I hope that takes care of it. Uh, for those of you who wondered what you were listening to in the middle of it, if you might have tuned in on it, uh, that was from... Uh, a book, a novel that I had out about uh, two years ago entitled In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. It was published uh, in hardcover by Doubleday, and uh, the softcover edition is by uh, Bantam Books, and it's still available around. But, uh, you know, that's that short story, uh, I've noticed an interesting thing about it. It's sort of like a human litmus paper. Some people uh, don't understand it at all. And other people uh, dig it all the way. It's a curious kind of a, a story, <laughs> as you probably observed. It, uh, it, uh, it just sort of hangs there. Now, I've been asked over and over again if that story is based on a real incident that uh, happened to me in my life. And I can truthfully say yes. That story was based on a real incident that did occur to me in life. I did play the sousaphone. I did play in a marching band that was a national champion. And we did have a drum major who was a fanatic, who, although his name was not Wilbur Duckworth, uh, <laughs> he was every bit as fanatical as, as the story shows him to be. You know, I think that there are a lot of things in American life that have not been yet touched by fiction writers, and uh, writers of any kind for that matter. I guess we're largely ignorant of our society. That uh, It seems to me that the the whole syndrome of the marching band and the drum majorette and the drum major are very, very American. In fact, I don't know of anything else, anything is, is, is more American as that. Uh, the, the Thanksgiving Day parades, the Christmas Day parades, these are, these are really American things. And I was pleased when uh, this story, Wilbur Duckworth, is, was singled out uh, to get it won several international awards in uh, the short story writing field. And, it, and the book itself, I was very pleased to... Uh, it was a prize-winning book. It got, a, it got the Indiana Writers' Conference Award as the most creative fiction of that year, which was 1967. But uh, this, uh, this particular story, I think, uh, <laughs> more than anything else, I, I notice it, it appeals to kids very much. Uh, kids really uh, dig this story, primarily, I guess, because they're living that world. Uh, I think that, that quite often we, as we get older, we kind of drift away from a lot of the stuff we see around us. We just sort of look at it. We don't really understand it or try to. Uh, going to a football game, for example, and watching a marching band do its, uh, its, its show in the halftime and all of its uh, complicated maneuvers. I wonder how many people even think for a minute what uh, fantastic work and what, uh, what uh, mythology goes into it uh, when the people are working on this thing. Sometimes I... I've seen a band work for maybe two or three months just on one formation, which uh, the people in the stands, when they're sitting there eating their hot dogs and waiting for the second half to come on, they don't even, they don't even look, you know. <laughs> but it's one of, those, one of those great American things. And, uh, 
And I was pleased tonight to uh, to read this story because uh, a lot of people have requested it, and I, I don't uh, talk much about my uh, written work much uh, because I let it stand for itself. But uh, this story, by the way, was... In fact, the whole book was recorded for the Talking Books for the Blind. So if there's any people out there who are blind and, and you know about the Talking Books, you can tell them uh, that you'd like to like to have the... Uh, I guess you'd say you'd like to read it on LP. But uh, <laughs> I hope that, uh, you know, I hope that the, uh, the Thanksgiving weekend was at least passably uh, tolerant to you. And I hope that, uh, you know, things hang loose. But I, uh, it's funny, after you read a story like this, it creates a strange atmosphere. Uh, the, the sight of a Wilbur Duckworth marching off into the middle distance uh, for uh, some totally unattainable, fanatical, self-contrived uh, secret goal is something that is very akin. Uh, you know, one, one uh, English professor wrote to me and said that, uh, that the only other fiction that character that he can parallel Wilbur Duckworth to is possibly Captain Ahab <laughs> as a type. Uh, he's not comparing the work particularly, but he's comparing him as a type, and there is some truth to that. And uh, that was Wilbur Duckworth and his magic baton. And I hope it swings this weekend for you.